Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey that the new age of enlightenment begins. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea, a new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one world communist government. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast where we talk about hidden history, depolitical policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the odd man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order. Public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific, technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop. All states, all dominions that have held and do hold empire over men have been and are either republics or principalities. The principalities are either hereditary in which the bloodline of their lord has been their prince for a long time, or they are new. The new ones are either altogether new, as was Milan to Francesco Sforza, or they are like members added to the hereditary state of the prince who acquires them, as is the kingdom of Naples to the king of Spain. Dominions so acquired are either accustomed to living under a prince or used to being free and they are acquired either with the arms of others or with one's own, either by fortune or by virtue. All right, I'm going to hit a few of the best Machiavelli quotes. He says, The first method for estimating the intelligence of a ruler is to look at the men he has around him. And I think we can look back at the modern and even past presidents from decades ago and kind of look into that. And I kind of go back to Trump, you know, supposed to be the great conservative savior. He appoints Bolton, who is the epitome of the elite. He appoints Kushner, who has Zionist ties, of course. He appoints Barr and Pompeo, that's CIA, and we know that Barr goes back to, I believe, even Ruby Ridge. This guy is swamp. We look at even Wilbur Ross, who was a Rothschilds man for decades. So I think you look at these guys that have been appointed by these presidents and you really know who the president is, no matter what they say later on. We'll read further on. It is not titles that honor men, but men that honor titles. Whoever believes that the great advancement and new benefits make men forget old injuries is mistaken. The best fortress is to be found in the love of the people. For although you may have a fortress, they will not save you if you are hated 
by the people. Where the willingness is great, the difficulties cannot be great. There is no other way to guard yourself against flattery than by making men understand that telling you the truth will not offend you. And lastly, everyone sees what you appear to be. Few really know what you are. I think that stands for every major politician. They are a character, and so many people believe in them. They put their faith in them. They nearly worship them. They kind of have this idea of what they want these guys to be. You know, we've talked about that. And they kind of fantasize about it. They build these guys up, and you see all these memes of these presidents turned into superheroes and warriors and different things like that. I think that Niccolò Machiavelli is probably the preeminent strategist, military and political-wise. And so I think we can look back to the prince and see a lot of the things that he wrote and understand that they are still very much in play today. He says, If an injury has to be done to a man, it should be so severe that his vengeance need not be feared. He also said, The lion cannot protect himself from traps, and the fox cannot defend himself from the wolves. One must therefore be a fox to recognize traps and a lion to frighten wolves. It is much safer to be feared than loved because love is preserved by the link of obligation, which owing to the baseness of men is broken at every opportunity for their advantage. But fear preserves you by a dread of punishment which never fails. Another, because there are three classes of intellects, one which comprehends by itself, another which appreciates what others comprehend, and a third which neither comprehends by itself nor by the showing of others. The first is the most excellent, the second is good, the third is useless. And this is a famous quote from the prince that applies today and probably forever. He who seeks to deceive will always find someone who will allow himself to be deceived. And again, I think we can just think about every election, every major election. It seems like these politicians never fail to be able to garner these huge audiences and this funding and this support. It's really sad, but, you know, the people in mass are not very deep thinkers, unfortunately. If they were, they would not support the things that they have supported, and we wouldn't be in this mess. So the people are easily fooled. Men in general judge more by the sense of sight than by the sense of touch, because everyone can see, but few can test by feeling. Everyone sees what you seem to be. Few know what you really are, and those few do not dare take a stand against the general opinion. And here he's talking about the masses. The vulgar crowd always is taken by appearances. And the world consists chiefly of the vulgar. I mean, is there any doubt looking around at what we've seen in the last few decades, the last century? Famously said, he who wishes to be obeyed must know how to command. Of course, that's true. Another famous quote that, of course, still applies. Of mankind, we may say in general, they are fickle, hypocritical, and greedy of gain. And here we think about Game of Thrones and uh, different things that we've seen. Any man who tries to be good all the time is bound to come to ruin among the great number who are not good. 
Hence, a prince who wants to keep his authority must learn how not to be good and use that knowledge or refrain from using it as necessity requires. And his famous quote about being feared. And here comes in the question whether it is better to be loved rather than feared, or feared rather than loved. It might perhaps be answered that we should wish to be both. But since love and fear can hardly exist together, if we must choose between them, it is far safer to be feared than loved. Men either ought to be well treated or crushed because they can avenge themselves of lighter injuries. Of more serious ones they cannot. Therefore, the injury that is to be done to a man ought to be of such a kind that one does not stand in fear of revenge. In this quote, he talks about a new order of things, and we can think about the Great Reset, the New World Order, the New Normal. It ought to be remembered that there is nothing more difficult to take in hand, more perilous to conduct, or more uncertain in its success than to take the lead in the introduction of a new order of things, because the innovator has for enemies all those who have done well under the old conditions, and lukewarm defenders in those who may do well under the new. This coolness arises partly from fear of the opponents who have the laws on their side, and partly from the incredulity of men who do not readily believe in new things until they have had a long experience of them. And this quote I think we can all relate to because it seems like we've been in endless wars. A prince must not have any other object nor any other thought but war, its institutions and its discipline, because that is the only art befitting one who commands. I think we can kind of look at the prince in today's world as just the global elite as a whole. And here, you know, it reminds me of all the politicians for the most part we've seen the longest time trying to put on this front. Therefore, it is unnecessary for a prince to have all the good qualities I have enumerated, but it is very necessary to appear to have them. And I shall dare say to this also that to have them and always to observe them is injurious, and that to appear to have them is useful, to appear merciful, faithful, humane, religious, upright, and to be so but with a mind so framed that you should require not to be so. You may be able and know how to change to the opposite. And here it says, concerning new principalities which are acquired by one's own arms and ability. Let no one be surprised if, in speaking of entirely new principalities, as I shall do, I adduce the highest examples both of prince and of state. Because men, walking almost always in paths beaten by others, and following by imitation their deeds, are yet unable to keep entirely to the ways of others or attain to the power of those they imitate. A wise man ought always to follow the paths beaten by great men, and to imitate those who have been supreme, so that if his ability does not equal theirs, at least it will savor of it. Let him act like the clever archers who, designing to hit the mark which yet appears too far distant, and knowing the limits to which the strength of their bow attains, take aim much higher than the mark, not to reach by their strength or arrow to so great a height, but to be able with the aid of so high an aim to hit the mark they wish to reach. 
And I think this is important, and we can think about the Hegelian dialectic and really the long-term planning of global GovCorp and the elite. This one short quote, I think, wraps that up and shows that this has been something in play for a very long time. He says, quote, For one change always leaves a dovetail into which another will fit, unquote. And here we have an interesting one. I don't think this is PC. This wouldn't go over in today's totally PC culture, Machiavelli. It's better to be impulsive than cautious. Fortune is female. Did he just guess fortune's gender? Fortune is female, and if you want to stay on top of her, you have to slap and thrust. You'll see that she's more likely to yield that way than to men who go about her coldly. And being a woman... She likes her men young because they are not so cagey. They are wilder and more daring when they master her. I think we can look to this. Maybe our foreign policy, as far as the Middle East goes, with the blowback that we received from arming the Mujahideen, later to have Al-Qaeda and ISIS, the Taliban, and also with Israel, and how they armed the rebels that would go on to be Hamas and Hezbollah. It says here, He who causes another to become powerful ruins himself, for he brings such a power into being either by design or by force. And both of these elements are suspects to the one whom he has made powerful. Of course, this is another that applies to today's politics. Therefore, any cruelty has to be executed at once so that the less it is tasted, the less it offends, while benefits must be dispensed little by little, so that they will be savored all the more. I think that's why you see all this fighting about this or that being funded, and it usually does get funded eventually, but they want to kind of draw that out and make a show of it and and do it slowly to kind of let people know, hey, the government really cares about you. And this is another quote that our government really needs to take to heart, but we know the plan and they will not. But when you disarm them, you at once offend them by showing that you distrust them, either for cowardice or for want of loyalty. And either of these opinions breeds hatred against you. But really, how many does that apply to nowadays as a whole? I think the digital world is changing people in such a way that they live online, they you know don't know how to do simple things like put up a shelf, change the oil in a car, load a gun. You know they're not the way they used to be. I think we're being lulled into this world of gaming and online activities of all sorts, and we're forgetting a lot of the things we used to know how to do, and we're and we're really not interested in a lot of the things that we used to be, and so. I think we're going to continue to see less and less people know how to use a firearm or even care to know how to use a firearm. And I think no matter what they say, I think things tend to get more liberal and eventually more and more people are not going to care about defending themselves and they're going to give more and more of the power over to the people who are in charge, you know, the powers that shouldn't be. Here he's talking about how people think. I think this is interesting. Minds are of three kinds. One is capable of thinking for itself. Another is able to understand the thinking of others. And a third can neither think for itself 
nor understand the thinking of others. The first is of the highest excellence, the second is excellent, and the third is worthless. And this one is interesting too because it really goes against the idea of communism. And, you know, I think about no matter what we like to tell ourselves, our property is never really ours because if we can't pay our taxes, our land taxes, of course, GovCorp will come and seize it. But he says here, But above all, he must refrain from seizing the property of others, because a man is quicker to forget the death of his father than the loss of his patrimony. And of course, I can't help but think about Palestine and what's been happening there for the longest time. And it's no wonder that there has been so much hate that's built up. Here we have another really good quote, I think, that will make us think about things. But in republics, there is a stronger vitality a fiercer hatred, and a keener thirst for revenge. The memory of their former freedom will not let them rest, so that the safest course is either to destroy them or to go and live in them. I talk about Fabian permeation and how I think that our own side or the side we kind of identify with the most politically usually is the one who's the most dangerous towards us and undermines us at every step because we keep a watchful eye on the enemy and we don't let them get very far if we can help it. Here he says, Princes and governments are far more dangerous than other elements within society. And this is one of the quotes that I read that made me want to kind of go over some of Machiavelli's greatest hits, if you will. When a newly acquired state has been accustomed As I have said, to live under its own laws and in freedom, there are three methods whereby it may be held. The first is to destroy it. The second, to go and reside there in person. The third, to suffer it to live on under its own laws, subjecting it to a tribute and entrusting its government to a few of the inhabitants who will keep the rest your friends. Such a government, since it is the creature of the new prince, will see that it cannot stand without his protection and support, and must therefore do all it can to maintain him. And a city accustomed to live in freedom, if it is to be preserved at all, is more easily controlled through its own citizens than in any other way. And he says, The people, as Cicero says, may be ignorant, but they can recognize the truth, and will readily yield when some trustworthy man explains it to them. Machiavelli's The Prince is one of the most important turning points in the history of Western political philosophy. It was written while Machiavelli himself was in retirement from active political life, 1532. And prior to that, he had worked for the Medici family in Florence. And he was one of the great dark characters in the history of Western thought. In some respects, he's kind of like the Darth Vader of philosophy. He represents all that is evil and unholy. In some respect, the spiritual antipode of someone like Marcus Aurelius. Machiavelli is a very secular, this-worldly sort of thinker. He's the kind of person that Plato warned us about. The kind of man who self-consciously seeks only the gratification of his desire for political power. A man who turns ruthlessness and treachery into matters of principle. 
and that's what makes him so good at them. It doesn't, it's not that he's treacherous or lying or faithless or ruthless once in a while. He's that way all the time. He's turned it into a system. In that respect, the writings of Machiavelli, which are not limited to the prince, he also wrote a number of historical works, uh, a work called The Discourse on Livy. He studied Roman history a great deal. Machiavelli's works are kind of handbook on how to be bad, particularly how to be politically treacherous, how to gain power. For Machiavelli, the ultimate good for human beings is the attainment of political power, and he is not choosy about the means. Whatever works, works. He is among the most practical of men. His idea of an, of an excellent politician is someone like Caesar Borgia. Caesar Borgia is mentioned many times in The Prince, and if you know what Caesar Borgia was like, he has a quite an interesting career. His father is Pope Alexander VI. We won't discuss how, how that could be the case, of course, but he's the illegitimate son of Alexander VI. Um, his sister is Lucrezia Borgia, a most unpleasant woman who spends a good bit of her time poisoning their friends and political rivals. And uh, Caesar Borgia was the sort of guy who wouldn't let mere family ties get in the way of political power. His older brother was the one who was destined or chosen by the father, Alexander VI, to get most political preferment. And Caesar Borgia didn't like that, so he killed his older brother, conspired against him, and killed him. Machiavelli thinks that's wonderful. Machiavelli says that warms his heart, makes him feel that finally somebody sees through the lies and the illusions and the pretensions of conventional morality. For Machiavelli, we live in the jungle. We live in a totally amoral universe, independent of scripture, independent of revealed religion, independent of the will of God. There's only the will of man. In that respect, Machiavelli is a path-breaking political philosopher, no matter how evil or pernicious his teachings. We ignore him at our peril. And like it or not, there is a dark and sparkling brilliance to this, like black diamonds. You look at it and you realize that, however horrifying his conclusions, there's a certain grim truth in what he says. And we may not accept the entirety of it, but like it or not, the world of politics is an ugly, profane, immoral place, at least to a great extent. And those of us who wish to be practical politicians will find it very hard to keep our hands completely clean. Machiavelli wishes to liberate us from what he views as being childish, insipid guilt feelings about political morality. There are no rules in politics in the same way and for the same reason there are no rules in nature. With Machiavelli, we have one of the great restatements of a political theme introduced in Western political thought in the first book of the Republic. If you stretch your memory back to Professor Ricuti's lectures last time, when he talked about the Republic, in the first book of the Republic, Socrates' primary antagonist is a man named Thrasymachus. He's a sophist, and Thrasymachus holds the view that justice is the advantage of the stronger. In other words, whoever it is that has the most force, the most military power, makes the rules. And justice is whatever they tell you to do. So when the Nazis win, whatever they tell you to do is just. If the Stalinists win, whatever they tell you is just. If Machiavelli wins, or the Borgias win, doesn't matter, as long as they have the power to coerce you, whatever they tell you is just. Thrasymachus' view, then, is that justice is a simple matter of coercion, and there is no moral order to the world. Now, this view is thoroughly criticized and at least apparently refuted in the first book of the Republic. 
But like all profound ideas, resonance of it is always, at least implicitly, in the Western political tradition. And Machiavelli regains the nerve to say there is no moral order to the world. He's the first man to reassert what Thrasymachus said in the first book of the Republic, that we live peculiarly and exclusively here in the realm of nature, that there is no metaphysical realm by which to judge the good and evil of human actions. There's only power, force, brutality. You adjust to it or you succumb to it. Those are your choices. Machiavelli wants to teach us how to become tyrannical men. And if you stop and think about the first book of the Republic, I believe you will recognize that Thrasymachus has the tyrannical soul. The soul is driven entirely by passion, that thinks reason is something, is an afterthought for the feeble who want to make up stories about why we ought to be good rather than evil. Machiavelli and Thrasymachus both wish to liberate us from metaphysics and morality. Both of them say, in this world of darkness, flux, double-crossing and backstabbing, the only way to get ahead, the only way to achieve human felicity, human happiness, human goodness, is to get them before they get you. Donald Trump recently wrote a book called The Art of the Deal. You could say that Machiavelli's book is The Art of the Double Cross. He not only explains how to be treacherous, he gives you examples. He calls them from history. He calls them from contemporary politics as well. But in every case, he shows that crime not only pays, but that goodness is a waste of time, and goodness will ultimately be your downfall. In some respects, Machiavelli's pro project is like that of Friedrich Nietzsche. It'll be a revaluation of all values. He's going to stand the Christian and the Platonic view of righteousness, of political morality, on its head. All the things that we previously thought to be good turn out to be evil. All the things that we previously thought to be evil turn out to be good, or if not good, pleasurable, practical, useful, handy. Machiavelli has written a number of works. The Prince, which is his most famous work, is a remarkably brief piece of work. Usually when a great philosopher has some important message to give, he can't control his pen, and if you look at, say, Aquinas' Summa Theologica, it goes on and on and on. It's interminable. Machiavelli has not written that sort of a book. It's a 90-page book, in and out. It's meant to be a practical handbook for the tyrant. Machiavelli's book, The Prince, was Joseph Stalin's favorite work. He kept it on his night table. And it's not hard to see why. It shows you how to be a good tyrant. A good in the sense of effective, good in the sense of practical, not good in the sense of morally good, because that's only for old ladies and kids. Nobody seriously believes that stuff. Now, this may sound like a very cynical set of ideas, and in fact it is. But although it is very cynical, there is an element of it which is practical, which is true, like it or not, if you are completely good, completely virtuous, I'm not certain that you will be a completely effective and efficient politician. I don't know that I want the president to be as kind and as thoughtful and as philosophical as Marcus Aurelius. Maybe we would be harmed as much as benefited by that. I am sure, on the other hand, that I don't want the president to be like Machiavelli's prince, because it's a sure thing we will be harmed rather than benefited by that. Prior to going into seclusion and writing this book, Machiavelli had worked for the Medici family in Florence, who were influential figures in Florentine and thus in Italian politics. And 
Although he had been serving them and helping them out and advising them on political matters, the Medici's had been thrown out of Florence, had been chased out, and with them goes Machiavelli. He goes into retirement. Now, there's a definite sense here that here's a man who's very intelligent, very bright, but awfully frustrated. He gives you that sense when you read the book of being a Monday morning quarterback. God, how he wants to go back into there in practical politics. He hates being among the musty books in the library. It's not interesting to him. What he primarily wants is to run people's lives. What he pr primarily wants is political power. And after he gets political power, what he wants then is more political power because you can never have enough. As Socrates pointed out about the tyrannical man, this is a thirst that can never be slaked. No matter how much satisfaction you get for these desires, nothing is ever enough. You're like someone that can't get enough to eat or can't get enough to drink. No matter how much you eat or drink, it's never satisfactory. So here's one of the great dissatisfied individuals, and he's even more dissatisfied because he's forced to be an armchair quarterback, and no one is more practical than Niccolo Machiavelli. He dedicates his book to one of the Medici family, and it's one of the most flowery and flattering and adoring introductions one could possibly imagine. And of course, it's no less cynical than the rest of the book. The book itself tells the wise prince, the monarch, the he who would be tyrant, that he must be very careful to avoid flatterers, because flatterers are dangerous men. <laughs> Your noble highness. A clever fellow like the Medici for whom Machiavelli is writing the book is going to see through the introduction, but then wonder, do I want this guy on my side or do I want him on someone else's side? This is a very difficult thing to consider, a difficult concern for a real prince. Look at the examples that we get in, the, in Machiavelli's The Prince. He gives examples of how to take over countries that you are born to. For example, if your father is the king and your, fa and your, your father dies, how you take succession there, very easy. The people will accept it. You, you won't have any problem with them. And when you are trying to establish your rule as a new ruler, in this legitimate government, the best thing to do is to establish fear, because you can count on fear. Machiavelli says it would be very nice if you could be loved. Having being loved by your people, by your subjects, is a very handy thing for a ruler. And Machiavelli says it's not that love is intrinsically good, but rather that love is handy and practical. And if your people love you, they're less likely to give you a problem. So you should cultivate love. Now, love is, is a nice thing to have, but Fear. Fear is the kind of thing Machiavelli really understands. He likes fear. Because fear is one of those things you can count on. And if, as Machiavelli points out, you are forced to choose between having the people love you and having them fear you, make sure you have them fear you, because you can count on fear. People's love, eh, you'll never be sure enough about that. But fear you can count on. So it's important to be feared. The next best thing is to be loved. The only thing the prince must avoid, according to Machiavelli, the prince cannot afford to be hated. When the people hate you, they will come and get you. One way or another, they will depose you. And the whole name of this game is to take power and to control power and to make it your own and then to absorb more power. There's a part in which he says, well, it's nice if you can inherit a kingdom from your father, if your father happens to be the king, but very few of us are lucky enough to have that circumstance. Now, you must think back to your head that, in your head that Machiavelli's father was the pope which is a very handy circumstance. It's just the problem is you, you can't get to the papacy by hereditary succession, so we have kind of a difficulty there. Yeah, they've been careful about that. Well, Machiavelli says, if you don't happen to be born to the throne, if you don't get the royal purple by matter of birth, there's always usurpation, which is a great favorite activity for him. He really likes usurpation. So the idea of getting close to the throne, of gradually weaseling your way into the court, and telling 
course, the king or the prince or the legitimate ruler, how much you admire him and how well you think of him and how important it is to constantly be pursuing Machiavellian political policies, the more you'll become important, indispensable, the more you could stab him in the back and take control of the government yourself. Machiavelli's moral universe is the moral universe of the wolf, of the predatory animal. Machiavelli and his political philosophy has a horrifying brilliance to it on account of the fact that it's consistent with much of what we see in political life on an everyday basis. The drawback of this conception of political philosophy and the concomitant conception of an amoral universe is that it makes people no longer social animals. Stop and think about what the Machiavellian wants us to do. He wants us to constantly betray others, both above us in the political structure and below us in the political structure, in order to satisfy our own lust for power. A lust which is never satisfied and which only grows bigger and bigger as its objects become bigger and bigger. That's one of the reasons, incidentally, why Machiavelli likes Roman history so much. Roman history is full of creatures like this. Machiavelli thinks they're wonderful. He thinks that the Italy of the 1500s, 16th century Italy, is feeble, uh, prostrate, broken up into fragmented, warring little cliques that prevent real political glory from coming into being. The reason why he likes a horrifying figure like Caesar Borgia is that Caesar Borgia is the man of virtu, V-I-R-T-U. Virtu is exactly the opposite of platonic virtue. It is much more like Thrasymachian virtue. It is the virtue of the man that tells lies, that stabs people in the back, that does whatever it takes to satisfy his unquenchable desire for power. So what we need is a man of virtu, and this book is designed to create virtu. The problem is that this virtu is the virtu of the predatory animal, not of the rational human being. Or it's the rational human being insofar as that rationality is completely subjugated or subordinate to one's irrational desires. And if you stop and look back at what the soul of the, of the tyrannical man was supposed to look like in the Republic, you realize that the desiring part is really running the rational part. The rational part of the soul is just an instrument in the hands of his desire for power or sex or money or what have you. Machiavelli takes that same conception of the soul. Desire comes first. My desire for power determines all my other activities, and my rationality is subordinate to that. So Machiavelli wants us to have that kind of virtu, the virtu of the leopard. The the guiltless killing of the hawk. The hawk doesn't feel bad about killing sparrows. That's the way hawks are. The way of nature is the way of cruelty. We must learn to live with that. Or die with that, if you get, if you get your way through Machiavelli. Ah, excuse me. Now, let's come back to the problem of Italy. Italy is fragmented. Italy is broken up. Italy is in a historically horrible set of circumstances. And Machiavelli is sounding a clarion call to break through from old ecclesiastical borrowings, old scriptural conceptions of virtue, old uh, Greco-Roman conceptions of morality. What Machiavelli wants is a good practical politician that will scheme and lie his way to the top. And once he gets to the top of a particular Italian city-state, he will attack one city-state after another and unify Italy and create something like a new Roman Empire. There can be new glory, a new this-worldly satisfaction of the potential for human greatness. Remember that Machiavelli is completely opposed to all metaphysical interpretations of the world. Machiavelli does not believe in heaven and hell. Machiavelli does not believe in God. Machiavelli does not believe in the realm of the forms. All Machiavelli believes in is here and now. The main chance, how are we going to get what we want right now? And Machiavelli's conception of virtu, of the blessed human condition, of the well-organized human soul, and of the practically run political society, all come together.
All right, guys, this concludes this episode of The Oddcast featuring me, your odd man, out. I want to thank you once again for taking the time to listen. Of course, this episode was about Machiavelli, and I had originally meant to do this on my Patreon, but I never got around to it, and I thought it was very important to get this information out because a lot of people know of the prince and about Machiavelli, but they don't really know about him. And so as the lecturer, Michael Sugru, that you heard said, his techniques are being used today in politics. And so I think that we need to think about those things. And the more we get familiar with these kinds of things, the more we're going to recognize them when we see them. And I do want to apologize about the audio quality of the lecture. Um, It looked to be about maybe 20, 25 years old. I just happened to run upon it, and so there was nothing I could do about the audio quality. I don't know much about Michael Sugru. I don't know his philosophy on politics or religion, but I do know that he's got a lot of good lectures on his YouTube. There's about 25 minutes left of that lecture, and I'll put the link in my show notes, and you can check it out and check out his other stuff. One thing that I was impressed about, too, is I read in the comments that he ad-libbed that lecture, that he wasn't even supposed to be the speaker that night, so it was pretty impressive indeed. And I don't know if I mentioned it earlier in the show, but H.G. Wells once called the Fabians the new Machiavellians, and you can kind of see that through their tactics of just basically infiltrating, permeating everything, all government and private sectors, and they... You know, they really just wanted to take control, just like Machiavelli. So I think it really helps us to learn about these groups and these powerful, clever individuals. Now, I want to thank my patrons for helping out the show. I want to thank KF. I want to thank Cole. I want to thank Ashley. I want to thank that crazy bread man for being a covert co-conspirator. I want to thank Aaron. I want to thank Ruckus for being a producer of the show. And you can check out ruckus on alternatecurrentradio.com the daily ruckus which is on hiatus right now but he's got a lot of great older shows and he's also all over tnt radio so check him out there as well i want to thank no evil shall i fear for being a producer of the show thank you so much no evil shall i fear thank you mark from houstonic live thank you james thank you bill thank you john brisson Thank you, Kilowatt. Thank you, Sir Tim of the Tunnels. Thank you, Aaron. And thank you, Jack Allen from Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence. Check out Jack's show on all your fine podcasting platforms. And actually, I was just on Jack's show this week, so I think it's the the newest episode. Check it out. With that being said, I want to thank AlternateCurrentRadio.com, my podcasting family. Check out all their fine podcasts, and music shows as well. And also thank you to FringeRadioNetwork.com for posting the show. They have many good shows on their site as well. And last week, guys, you heard me mention that one of our Boiler Room crew, one of the social rejects, passed away suddenly. It was very unexpected, and we're all still broken up about it. But the Alternate Current Radio crew, they started a Give, Send, Go or Brian Wilcox, a.k.a. Chopper. Chopper left behind two beautiful daughters. And if you want to help out the family, look in the show notes to give, send, go. You can check out the website and everything like that. If you feel led to, please help out his family. He was a great guy, and he will be missed for a very, very long time. With that being said, guys, I look forward to bringing you new shows very soon. Thank you for your support. Cheers and blessings. And remember, their order is not 
our order. See you guys. Of his angels be with us evermore. Amen.